It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Hello, this is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library, and today I will be talking about two movies that are available to view on Netflix. Both Oscar winners from a couple of years ago, um, both wonderful films. The first will be uh, Roma, the Mexican film, a sensitive quasi-autobiographical movie written and directed by Mexican filmmaker Alfonso Cuaron. And the second movie is Marriage Story by the New York filmmaker Noah Baumbach, which won an Oscar for its uh, actress in a supporting role, Laura Dern. And was also nominated for several other Oscars, including Best Picture. But first, Roma, spelled R-O-M-A, which was shot entirely in Mexico City in black and white. And the film is a journey back in time and memory for the filmmaker Alfonso Caron, a time of his own childhood in the city's Roma neighborhood, when he would have been about uh, 10 years old. And it's dedicated to Quran's own childhood nanny, whose real name is Libo, L-I-B-O. So immediately we know that the film isn't intended to be entirely autobiographical. In fact, the central character is not Quran uh, himself or one of the boys standing in for him, but rather Cleo, as played by uh, the non-professional actress Yalitza Aparicio who received an Oscar nomination for her performance, though, in the Best Actress category. In the movie, Cleo is an indigenous domestic worker in um, Quran's upper-middle-class household. His father is a doctor, his mother is a pharmacist, and the film follows her, the nanny, with us frequently seeing things through her perspective as she performs her daily chores, which include caring for the families for children, including Quran himself. The film itself takes place between the autumn of 1970 and midsummer 1971, bracketing the unmarried Cleo's unwanted pregnancy, side by side with the marital breakup of her employer's Quran's parents with a lot of references to the socio-political life in Mexico at that period, in that period. Now, what I really like about this movie is the film's poetic qualities, that it takes its time to let things unfold. It's really a kind of recreated memory of this specific place in time. And, I mean, for the filmmaker, for for Quran, who is uh, would be in his 50s now. And so... The movie, with this really kind of poetic black and li- black and white uh, photography, it is a, a narrative film. It is gives you a very concrete sense of uh, place and time, but nevertheless, it is kind of filtered through Quran's uh, memories of that time, and so it does give you the feeling of a somewhat dreamlike experience, and it's really wonderful in uh, in in its narrative effect. 
What's fairly unusual about the movie Roma, um, I mean, and it, it comes from an important Hollywood filmmaker, Quran has made uh, the earlier movies Children of Men in 2006 and Gravity in 2013, for which he received an Oscar uh, as Best Director. And of course, he was also nominated in 2019 for Roma as Best Director and, and won for that as well. So he's actually a two-time Oscar-winning director. But what's fairly unusual about this movie from an important Hollywood filmmaker with the backing of a ma major corporation like Netflix is that it has chosen to concentrate on the more painful and moving fate of a poor indigenous woman, the Cleo character, the nanny that Quran uh, has reimagined from his uh, own childhood, and a character played uh, by a non-professional actress. So that's very atypical. And it does this without sentimentality, excessive romanticism, or hero, hero worship of any kind, while at the same time conveying Cleo's quiet strength, and inherent dignity in her role serving the family. I mean, what might have been expected otherwise is that such a film would have concentrated on the problems of the various family members whose own conditions, of course, are worth examining. But these are less important in the course of the movie, except insofar as they affect the life of the nanny Cleo. In an early scene, we see Cleo washing the family's clothing on the roof while two of the children play around her. As the camera pans, we see other women on other rooftops, each working in the same matter-of-fact manner. At the same time, one senses something unique about Cleo in this scene. She pauses in her work to participate in the fantasy life of the youngest child, which is an emotional give-and-take that is echoed in a dramatic episode toward the end of the film. In another of Roma's memorable sequences, Cleo takes a city bus to the outskirts of the city. The scene in the shanty town, composed of cardboard and tin shacks built around a muddy field, whose wretched surroundings in this marginalized township contrast with the vibrancy and creativity of its inhabitants. As Cleo walks to her destination, the township is being bombarded with political propaganda from an outdoor, open-air loudspeaker, which cynically praises the benefits of the president of the day. Other images in Roma, the shadows of men in paramilitary training, children in a field, the arid Mexican landscape, and the militaristic parade of a high school marching band passing through Roma, are disquieting moments in the story, and effectively direct the viewer's attention to the underlying drama and its tensions. Something that Roma is providing, uh, as well as this portrait of uh, an indigenous domestic worker in an upper-middle-class household, is a kind of testament to the phenomenon of the urbanization of peasants from the villages and fields to the big cities of Latin America, in this case, of course, specifically Mexico City. And this was something that took place in the post-war 
era of World War II in the latter half of the 20th century. And it really took place across Latin America and led to the formation of a series of megacities, not just Mexico City itself, but also Sao Paulo, Buenos Aires, Rio de Janeiro, and others, um, which created, among other things, this vast array of domestic servants, domestic workers, street vendors, and street entertainers like, um, like those we see depicted in this movie. Now, of course, individual responses to social disorder and displacement will differ wildly, but the character of Cleo is depicted as largely submissive, hardworking, and both unquestioningly loyal and dependable. She's the first to get up in the morning, the last to go to sleep at night. Cleo is someone who knows her place in the home and does not need to be told twice about things. She's also thankful that her boss, Sophia, does not sack her for being pregnant. In fact, uh, Cleo has become the subject of a misfortune involving a, a man of her own age who's taken advantage of her love for him. But she continues to do all the work expected of her, climbing the many steps to the roof to wash laundry by hand, mopping the floors, serving meals, etc. Her tasks also include waking the family's children with whom she bonds and getting them ready for school. The strongest emotional connection Cleo has to the household is through the children, and she is particularly fond of the youngest child. And the children themselves seem to respond in kind with a great deal of affection for Cleo. As it turns out, while on a family excursion to the beach later in the film, her devotion to those children eventually forces her to go beyond the call of mere duty in order to rescue one of them from drowning. You know, there is a suggestion as the film evolves of a special link between the women of the household. Sophia, the wife, the mother, struggling within a loveless marriage, but also Sophia's widowed mother, the children's grandmother, and the two female servants, including Cleo. There's this kind of special linked link developed uh, among all the women of the film. In this, uh, in a drunken moment, uh, the unhappy Sophia tells Cleo at one point that, uh, and I quote her here, saying, we women are always alone, end quote. But in any case, the lines of authority are clearly established. Cleo never complains, never has to be told to do something twice, and never talks back, even if yelled at unjustly. Another element in the film is the influence of the United States, uh, in, with, in which um, Alfonso Caron offers a, a rather quietly placed cultural critique of uh, depicting Americans or those Mexicans who imitate them as gun-happy landowners, whiskey drinkers, philanderers, and uh, 
mistreaters of animals. In one scene, the physical training of a murderous paramilitary squad is shown to be overseen by a U.S. official, presumably someone from the CIA. But these are things that happen around the edge of the as uh, these are things that happen around the edges of the film. The film is really quite centrally located on the life of Cleo herself, and everything that she sees is something that we see through her perspective. Uh, and we see her observing these things, um, like this uh, paramilitary training in a field outside the city itself. We see her observing that casually. Uh, so it's not something that the film makes uh, places a great emphasis upon, although it is really quite important, as we will find out in the course of the movie. And this kind of casual observation is uh, similar to how Cleo observes things going on in the household of her employers. You know, it may not be lost on the viewer that the word Roma, spelled backwards, is amor, A-M-O-R, the Spanish word for love. And the real heroine of this film, Kiran's live-in nanny, who's memory the film is dedicated to and uh, in the shape of the character of Leo, it's clear that he regards her with uh, much love, just as we ourselves as viewers do with Cleo by the end of this wonderful film. I think we come to have a similar regard and even a kind of uh, viewer love for her as a character in watching this movie. And to that extent, Kiran uh, has done very well in uh, dedicating his film to his, uh, to his nanny. Roma the movie has been highly praised and won many awards. It's polished in its photography and sound and the skill of its performers. And that its performers are largely non-professional helps give the movie a kind of documentary-like reality. It isn't reality, of course. It is a movie. But it does feel like reality at times. And Curran is a justly celebrated director for such techniques. I mean, he provides the viewer with so much to see in each carefully composed vignette, however epic, intimate, mythic, or mundane. You know, it may be worth noting as well that the filmmaker once explained that, and I quote him here, my biggest source of inspiration was my uncle Afonso Caraz Caram, a world-renowned criminologist. He constantly advised me to work with topics that were personal, framing them in a socio-political context. And certainly that's what Kiran has achieved with Roma. Now, however the impact of the often tragic events in Mexico and throughout Latin America in the decades of the 1960s and 70s, when Kiran was growing up, and which we see on the edges of this film, they no doubt have weighed heavily on the director. And while Roma as a movie is definitely picturesque, you know, filled with mood, memory, and nostalgia, 
but it's long takes in which events unfold before the often unmoving or slow panning camera, they suggest a certain passive and fatalistic view of things, I think. So it would seem reasonable to suggest that this view is bound up with the representation of Cleo herself, especially in her unquestioning loyalty and that of the other servants depicted in the movie. In that sense, and this really isn't a criticism of the movie, but just an observation, in that sense, the overall vision that Kiran presents is, I think, a little bit at odds with the spirit of rebellion and resistance going on in both Mexico and much of the rest of the world in those decades. Nevertheless, this truly is a great film, both understated and otherworldly in its dreamlike imagery, that reminded me of another filmmaker, an Italian filmmaker, the great Federico Fellini, especially with his movies La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half. And like those classics, Roma is also hypnotic, transporting, and sublime. That's the movie Roma, R-O-M-A, available to view on Netflix. The second film I would like to talk about today is an American film, a film from the writer-director Noah Baumbach, entitled Marriage Story, which um, was also up for many awards at the Oscars in the same year as Roma in 2019, and it too can be viewed on Netflix. Marriage Story provides the account of a divorce between a theater director, played by Adam Driver, and an actress, played by Scarlett Johansson. And the movie is set in both Los Angeles and New York City. And those dual settings are very important to the uh, course of the movie, as the Adam Driver character is very committed to his career in New York, whereas the Scarlett Johansson character has been offered a television series in Los Angeles, which is her birthplace, and so she has moved there, um, temporarily or otherwise, we're not certain at first, but she's done so with the couple's young son named Henry. In any case, it soon becomes clear that their marriage is breaking up, and Scarlett Johansson's character, Nicole, is advised to hire a high-powered, if high-priced, divorce lawyer named Nora Fanshawe, played by Laura Dern. Nicole explains to Nora that she wants out of the marriage because while being with Adam Driver's character, Charlie, had been enough in the beginning, over time she felt she had less and less weight in his theater company and had gotten smaller both as a performer and as a person. She explains, I didn't ever really come alive for myself. I was just feeding his aliveness, she says. On a visit that Adam Driver's Charlie makes to Los Angeles to visit Scarlett Johansson's Nicole and their young son Henry, who are both staying with uh, Nicole's mother, played by Julie Haggerty, Charlie gets served, much to his surprise, with divorce papers. Um, he haltingly explains, I guess I didn't think it through, but I thought we agreed we weren't going to use lawyers. He then stumbles out of his mother-in-law's house in some dismay. 
And at this point, we can see that these two genuinely good people, if somewhat self-obsessed, are about to get caught up in a process, a divorce process, that will tear their lives apart. Now, while in Los Angeles and now needing his own lawyer, Charlie meets with an equally high-priced, high-powered one, a street fighter, as he is later referred to uh, by Nora Fran- Franchot, uh, by the name of Jay Marotta, who's played uh, in the movie by Ray, the actor Ray Liotta, who's best known for his gangster role in the movie Goodfellas. And uh, he has an assistant named Ted. Jay opens with, I charge $950 an hour. Ted, he is $400 an hour. So if you have a stupid question, you call Ted. To start, we'll need a $25,000 retainer and all your financials. We need to do a forensic accounting, which runs anywhere from ten dollars to $20,000. But if we can agree right away, it shouldn't get too bad. Now, Charlie's put off by all of this. He really doesn't want to go that route. It's, it's too expensive, and he wants something a little more humane. So he tries to, to make do with a cheaper, older, and certainly more humane lawyer named Bert Spitz, who's played by the actor Alan Alda. Now, at this point, the divorce process truly begins to take on this bizarre and illogical character as Charlie realizes that however well-intentioned, Bert may not be his best option. As it begins to become clear that Johansson's lawyer is going to take him for everything he's got. So he returns to the legal shark, played by Ray Liotta. The case does move to court, and the two attorneys begin to portray each other's clients in the darkest, most unfair, and one-sided manner possible. Meanwhile, Charlie and Nicole meet apart from the lawyers, but their conversation, because of the involvement of the lawyers at least in part, descends into bitter, angry recrimination. However, in the end, they come to a fairly equitable, rational, and humane agreement which is ironically the point at which they had started before everything became diverted by the greed, selfishness, and vindictiveness inherent in the divorce process itself. As if, it's as if they had never really needed the lawyers at all, and the film leaves us to think that the future, their future, apart, will be a cooperative one. I mean, they're now divorced, but it will be a future without acrimony in which uh, will continue in the best interests of their child, Henry. Marriage Story is the second Noah Baumbach movie that I've seen recently, uh, the Meyerowitz stories being the other, which is also available on Netflix. And like all of Baumbach's movies, including uh, that one, but also The Squid and the Whale, Margot at the Wedding, Greenberg, Francis Ha, and Walry Young. This one, Marriage Story, is a contemporary, largely plotless study of the lives of relatively young or middle-aged people, people who are upper middle class, a little self-obsessed. You might call them yuppies, if that's a term that we still use these days. I mean, they're, they're characters often involved in the arts or education and who are 
often on journeys of self-discovery, no matter how old they might be. The subject of divorce is a frequent element in these movies, although overarching everything really is the privileged, overcomplicated lives of the characters, whom, it must be said, it's not always, always easy to care much about, if only because they are so self-obsessed. And because they also remind us, I would think, of uh, people we know and people in our own lives. And to some extent, we may be those people as well. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't bring us the exotic lives of characters in Mexico, for example. It might be um, more interesting to find fascinating, if uh, more difficult to identify with. Now, from what I know of Bombach's own background in New York, there is much semi-autobiographical detail in his movies, and certainly that's true in Marriage Story, uh, the parents of which, played by Adam Driver and Scarlett, Devor uh, Scarlett Johansson, are apparently not unlike his own, with very similar artistic and educational backgrounds. And they divorce too, so his uh, films uh, are have very much of his own life in them. They also remind me um, of the work of the great Swedish filmmaker Ingmar Bergman, in that they're very self-conscious, they have this degree of self-reflection and dramatic intensity that they share with uh, Bergman's movies. But maybe unlike Bergman, they're less stripped down not as exotic <laughs> as Bergman's films are Swedish, obviously, and set in a very different part of the world. And they're largely without the allegorical detail that I think uh, helps make Bergman's movies so fascinating. Nevertheless, there is a strong degree of self-consciousness um, similar to Bergman in Baumbach's work that can't help but often refer to um, such earlier movie antecedents, and the debt he owes to Bergman is referred to explicitly in one scene where we catch a glimpse of a framed story about the married couple, uh, played by Driver and Johansson, which hangs on the wall of their New York apartment. And that story is entitled Scenes from a Marriage, which is also the title of one of Bergman's great films, a movie from 1975. One difference with Bergman uh, that we do find uh, uh, in Bombeck's films is that there is a lot of humor in uh, Bombeck's movies, at, at least at times. And, you know, the awkwardness of everyday situations like uh, Charlie's initial meeting with the high-priced lawyer or when attempting to hide the severity of the cut he has inadvertently inflicted upon himself while meeting with a court-appointed uh, child expert. And... Um, this is a kind of humor when combined with uh, largely plotless contemporary character-driven drama, family dramas that reminds me a lot of the work of another filmmaker uh, influenced by Ingmar Bergman, and that is uh, another New York filmmaker, in fact, Woody Allen, who, despite his current troubles, is someone we still may largely associate with uh, similar milieu as Baumbeck, as both are quintessentially New York filmmakers. Another thing typical of Bombeck, and this movie, Marriage Story in particular, is that the casting is flawless. I mentioned earlier that Laura Dern received an Oscar for her supporting role as, uh, 
as a, as a divorce lawyer, as one of the divorce lawyers, um, but also Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. They were both nominated in the Best Actor and Best Actress categories. So there are truly some wonderful performances going on here in Marriage Story. But for me, though, I think the strongest aspects of Marriage Story have to do with the dreadful divorce racket itself and the monsters and the bankruptcy that the process can make out of normal human beings and can take out of normal human beings insofar as the money involved goes. I mean, at one point, the Alan Alda character tells Adam Driver, getting divorced with a kid can be one of the hardest things you'll ever do. It's like a death without a body. And the high-priced lawyers themselves, they come off as quite thuggish and full of threats, while at least with the Laura Dern character attempting to pass as genial and well-intentioned, which is somewhat hypocritical, of course. But what's really terrifyingly well-portrayed is just how the divorce process itself spins out of control, beyond the control, beyond the intentions initially of two good, well-intentioned people who never dreamed that things would become so acrimonious. But I suppose what makes marriage story so profound and so affecting is its tenderness that ultimately these good people who get caught up in this terrible process, ultimately they never lose touch with their true humanity. Um, however bad things get, and return to that humanity in the end. It's, it's really quite wonderful. That's Marriage Story, available to view on Netflix. Okay, that's it, folks. I hope you've enjoyed these two reviews of the movies Roma and Marriage Story. Uh, you've been listening to Co-St. Luke Librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Please join me next time for more movie talk. And remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at cosaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page, or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day.